We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host for the day's episode, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Edward White of News Lens International. Good day, Gavin. And New Bloom is Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the phone we have ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Good evening. Well, it might have been a short working week here in Taiwan due to the four-day tomb-sweeping holiday weekend, but we certainly weren't short on news. Human rights advocate Li Mingzhe remains detained in China with no word on his whereabouts or his health. It was the 42nd anniversary of the death of Chiang Kai-shek, and postal workers were at the centre of a debate over the government's long-term care programme for the elderly. But the biggest story of this week affecting Taiwan is the meeting today and tomorrow in Florida between US President Donald Trump and China's Xi Jinping. The government here in Taiwan has said is in close contact with the United States in regards to the meeting, with the Mainland Affairs Council saying that it will be ready to respond properly to possible future developments at the Trump-Xi meeting in order to safeguard the island's interests and dignity. While in Washington, a White House official on Wednesday gave assurances that the talks would not involve a trade-off on the Taiwan issue. So, Brian, what do you reckon we can expect from these talks specifically about Taiwan? Um, I mean, many people have been saying that there would not be a lot coming out of this meeting because, you know, it, it, it telegraphing from the Trump administration before the meeting seemed to indicate that, you know, there would not be a major shift in Taiwan policy and that the major issues would be trade in North Korea. But sometimes I wonder if, you know, a lot of this talk that, you know, nothing would be coming out of this indicates anxiety that there might be some random shift because Trump is, I think, if anything else, unpredictable. Um, so we'll really have to see going into this. But at present, you know, that the meeting's begun and we still don't know. Um, yeah. Right, Donovan, the one China policy, do you think it will loom big today and tomorrow in Florida? Well, like Brian said, I mean, most of the analysts right now say are predicting that the most that they're going to focus the talks on North Korea and trade. Uh, but most analysts have a consistent record of totally screwing everything up when it comes to Trump. So who knows? Right, and Edward. Yeah, I, I guess I'd agree that the analysts that I've talked to in Taiwan and overseas all expect a pretty benign outcome for Taiwan this week. The the thing that they're all saying, though, is that they're not ruling out anything unexpected, so that has been pretty uh, consistent with the Trump administration, that we should expect something unpredictable. The question is, what would it be related to Taiwan? Well, we can expect that the Chinese would raise the issue of arms sales, as they usually do when they talk about Taiwan with the US, and they'll be looking for another statement from Trump sort of reinforcing the US position on China and Taiwan. I guess the only other thing that I would add at this point is that no matter what comes out of it, we've already seen with this administration in the US that they have a habit of um, perhaps unwinding some of the positions that Trump may say off the cuff. Of course, there was talk this week in the Japanese media about Taiwan being sold F-35 advanced jet fighters. I mean, do you think this was just media speculation, Brian? Ahead um, of I mean, the meeting. Obviously, the media speculation came ahead of the meeting. So. That's right. Um, I mean, there's been talk for a long time about the F-35s and also THAAD, the, uh, the anti-missile defense system, because, you know, that's, that's something that, would, that, that has provoked China's ire when installed in North, South Korea. And, you know, there's the potential for that to be installed in Japan next and maybe also Taiwan. But 
the Thai administration currently views it as too dangerously provocative of China to install that. So backing away from that, but also wanting to signal commitment to you know defending Taiwan's de facto independence by force if necessary, as well as to buying U.S. arms. You know, going for the F-35s is a possibility. Trump has indicated in the past that you know he does view the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship as as beneficial to America because Taiwan buys so many arms from America. So that that's another way to signal commitment. We've also had questions about whether the Chinese side will insist that the U.S. adheres to the One China principle as opposed to the One China policy. Donovan, do you see the U.S. shifting from policy to principle? No, uh, and, and there's been a lot of talk about a fourth, call, you know, communique, uh, and, and I don't see that happening either. I think that the both of those things are too deep. Uh, they're too deep a, re, a fundamental reassessment of, of of the relationship between China and the U.S. And I don't think that the U.S. policy team across the board is is really up enough up to speed uh, to be able to implement something like that. Considering that they've got so much on their plate right now, and they just came into office, I just don't see it happening. Right, of course, one other factor affecting possibly U.S.-China ties is reports that the Trump administration's basically Foreign Service, State Department f- um, personnel aren't all in place yet. Edward, yeah, I, I think that that's something that um, the Chinese will particularly well. There's a view that the Chinese will be looking to take advantage of that. that they could potentially use these um, talks as a as a, a platform to push some things forward that they may not be able to do in other times if the administration was better prepared. I, I actually I slightly disagree in that. I think that the Chinese will just be looking for a business-as-usual outcome from this. They'll be wanting something for domestic consumption that will be something like President Trump and Xi Jinping shaking hands before she gets on the plane, and um, the Xinhua News Agency being able to put out a, a, a brief article or two around the fact that the Trump has, you know, restated the America's America's position and has got on well. And interestingly, the Chinese media to date, um, you know, the meeting's just started, but so far they haven't been playing up this platform that or this summit so far. So that we could read into that, that they are ex- they're not expecting a huge amount of controversy out of this either. Right. Donovan, anything else? Uh, well, I can add one thing, which is um, I, I agree with what, what, what uh, Edward just said, but uh, it, I think a lot of the arms sale things, uh, I think that would be a quick way for uh, the U.S. and Taiwan to, uh, for, for, you know, for Trump to, to, to score a quick win on the trade front. Uh, if you were to sell, you know, sell the F-35s or any, anything else, uh, those particularly expensive packages to Taiwan, that would change the, the, um, it would change the trade figures. Uh, significantly in the balance of the U.S., which he could call a win. I don't think he's going to go for Thad, though. I think that would be too. That, I think that would be too risky. But of course, that could affect the U.S.-China ties as well, couldn't it, Brian? Um, yeah, definitely could. Because you know, the issue with Thad is that China views that as provocative of it. Because you know, China claims that the radar range of Thad is so extensive that it extends into China, which has been confirmed by U.S. you know officials. Um, although perhaps unwittingly. And so, you know, it's, it's you really, really using this issue to kind of inflame uh, nationalism at present. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really to be see, seen if Trump will rock the boat that far. And, you know, as to, how, as, as to the question, general question of what Trump's future policy in the, in the Asia will be. Will it be towards, you know, taking a stronger stance to counter China or will it be backing away from China? I mean, you think there's a possibility that Xi Jinping will push Trump to do something on Taiwan, about Taiwan and the U.S. ties, to deal with North Korea? 
I just think from these talks that um, whatever comes out of it, if she does sort of win in the sense that Trump says something around Taiwan or or North Korea at the end of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what is going to happen. Um, the US administration will try and, I guess, push back and come back for a sort of a status quo approach. So even if the case is that Trump says we will, for instance, review our arms sales because that's what Xi Jinping has asked for, this is obviously all hypothetical, that wouldn't necessarily necessarily preclude arms sales later in the year. I, I really think that it you know, points to the kind of discombobulated nature of the Trump administration. For example, the fact that the State Department doesn't have people in place. You know, it's also a question how much influence Rex Tillerson even has sometimes within the State Department. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's also to be seen. I mean, Rex Tillerson did indicate seemingly a low-key approach when he you know, echoed Chinese vocabulary when he met with Xi Jinping himself. But, you know, as for Trump, that's, that's an issue. What he does uh, and then what, you know, the State Department or other government agencies will do. Right, and of course, we've also had no word on what they're having for dinner. No, all we know so far is who's sitting next to who. So we've seen a photo and we have um, the we have Trump and Xi sitting side by side and then their wives either side of them there. And then we have, um, I think, Jared Kushner on, on one side and then the Chinese foreign minister. I think, though, I'm actually, I'm guessing because his head was turned to the side in right. the photo. But no news on the food. Not yet. There was talk of uh, McDonald's getting delivered, wasn't there? And maybe you laid on a Chinese meal. I, know, I, li- I like to eat. See, I like to see Xi Jinping eat pizza with a fork, much like that'd Trump be funny. Does. But a Chinese meal would, of course, be funny. He flies halfway around the world and has a Chinese meal. That's right. That'd be a bit of a bummer, <laughs> that wouldn't it? Go all the way somewhere and have what you can have at home. Anyway, we should be awaiting the outcome of that meeting, which is going on today as we record this show, and will no doubt be making Saturday's headlines here in Taiwan. Anyway, moving on to the latest about human rights advocate Li Mingzhe, who remains detained in China on charges of endangering national security. Earlier this week, Li's wife, Li Jingyu, announced that she plans to travel to China next week as she seeks answers to numerous questions about her husband's arrest in Zhuhai on March the 19th. And she is reportedly going to be accompanied to China by officials from Taiwan's Straits Exchange Foundation. However, there remains some concern over how well they will be received in China, as Deputy Justice Minister Chen Ming-Tung on Wednesday of this week admitted that China's Ministry of Public Security has yet to reply to requests for further information about the charges that Li is facing. And the Straits Exchange Foundation, for its part, says it has sent five messages to China requesting approval for Li's family to visit him, but has received no response from its Chinese counterpart, the Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Straits, from any of these requests. So, Brian, are we looking at a messy situation on Monday morning when we look at the television and see them being detained or being turned away from Beijing International Airport? I think that likely they'll be turned away. I mean, that's very possible. I mean, I think China wants to avoid the spectacle of Li's wife, you know, pleading as to her husband's whereabouts within China. Um, I mean, China's just right now giving Taiwan the silent treatment. And, you know, it's still it's still unknown where Li is, um, on what charges Li is being detained on. And, you know, the general situation doesn't seem like it's being resolved. And so far as, you know, that this kind of works out in China's favor as a way to intimidate Taiwan, I mean, I think it'll kind of stick with that strategy. So unfortunately, I don't see Li being released anytime soon. What about a visit, Edward? Do you think his wife will be allowed to visit him? Or do you think, like Brian said, they'll, they'll be turned away or made or persuaded maybe to go home? Yeah, I guess they may be advised that it they may not be allowed into Beijing. I, I guess the the bigger question at the moment is um, the supporters of of this man have and his and his wife are reaching out to the international community. So international NGOs in Taipei are later this after, well 
have today held a press conference and are looking to drum up international support. There's an event being held over the weekend in New York around this as well. And if we look at past cases of um, you know Chinese dissidents that have gone to America and then returned to China and been detained, you really do need a huge amount of international support behind you to get, um, in, in many cases, to get released from from some of these really tough situations. But do you think that Li Li Mingjie has that support? Obviously, he's from Taiwan. He's not he's not a big sort of newspaper headline grabbing human rights advocate. He's just a former DPP employee that followed human rights that was visiting friends in China. Yeah, I guess that's a, it's a really good question. Um, obviously, activists, um, sunflower activists in Taiwan have put their support behind them and they carry significant weight domestically, whether or not that extends to international support. And the, and the key really is to get, um, to be blunt, the American government behind you um, lobbying on your part on this, this sort of issue. Right, mm. Donovan, do you, think, do you think the Taiwan government really needs the American government lobbying for them over this issue? I think it needs international support, definitely. Uh, uh, you know, but this, everything about this entire case just stinks. There's something wrong with it. And, and you know, I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what it is that they're trying to accomplish because they pick somebody so low level, so sort of off everyone's radar. Um, you know, in, in previous case where they, you know, where they picked up uh, Hong Kong booksellers, and these were all people that were sort of on the radar, and this guy is totally off pretty much everyone's radar. And, you know, he, he, you know, he, he, he talked to people on Weibo, you know, an online chat or you know, chat uh, platform in China, but on relatively small scale. I mean, you know, when once he was once he was uh, arrested, nobody knew who he was. I mean, they had to go out and research who he was and his friends had to come together and uh, you know uh, announce details and then it gets worse the SEF has said that they uh, they hoped its members of its staff would be allowed to accompany the wife uh, to visit China uh, the wife has gotten tired of waiting and she's booked a, a flight but they don't know if she's going to be allowed in I, I, there's something odd about this whole thing and I can't quite I don't know what it is it's a why pick up somebody so low level and so off everyone's radar. It's, that's what's puzzling about this. Mm, I think that Lee might have been actually caught in the crossfire of just generally, you know, tightening restrictions on Chinese civil society um, because of the fact that he had such contacts with, you know, Chinese civil society and NGOs and so forth and was interested in human rights. And yeah. then, you know, China might have just jumped onto the issue because it's a convenient way to get at Taiwan because, you know, they had this guy now, so they might as well do something with him. Yeah, um, I mean, they have the NGO crackdown going on on one hand. They've also got the, there could be retaliation over the spy, the student spy from China case. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities here, but it just seems so low level and it seems to be such a high profile conflict and so little response out of China. So some, something, some message is being sent here. But what is it? It, it, it? Because there's so many different levels to this. You know, whether it is the NGO thing, as Brian just referenced, or whether or not it's a, you know, it's retaliation for the, the, you know, the, the Chinese student being arrested, or, it, you know, is this just a general across the board shot across the bow, basically saying if you, you know, if you're pro independence or you meddled in internal politics in China on our media, you know, on our, on our. Uh, you know, on our social media, then we're going to crack down on you. It, 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 it just seems to be, it's, it's a very blunt instrument 
for for somebody so small. So what what which of these different theories is true is what the question in my mind is. Right, um, Edward, do you see this maybe escalating, or do you think it will fizzle out and hopefully sort of rectify itself in a a short period of time? Well, we just have to look at previous examples. You know, Peter Dalian, the um, Swedish um, was it Swedish or NGO, uh, Norwegian NGO worker that mm-hmm. was held in China for 23 days uh, in recent years, um, and other Chinese or um, other dissidents that have found themselves in similar situations. Often, the only way out is to sign something of a fake confession, go on Chinese state television, um, apparently apologising, and then leave and, and never come back. So that's that's probably the path that he has to take. The, the other thing to just I think mention at the moment though is this. Really really just reflects how little um, communication is going on across the strait. The, the reason that the international effort is so important now is because Taiwan just has very few communication mechanisms with China and the, has very little leverage in the diplomatic space internationally to, to help get its own person out of the situation. Yeah, obviously, he was he worked for the DPP. He wasn't a politician. He was a staffer for the DPP. And, of course, when we've seen these incidents in previous years that have involved other individuals, business people, for example, sort of officials from the KMT, Brian, have got suddenly involved. And they've, mm. I mean, one of them, Alex Tsai, the KMT's mm. communications bod. He he's always seems to get involved in such situations. Mm. We haven't seen any of the KMT trying to get involved and going, well, we could help mediate. I mean, why do, why do you think this is... I think it's an issue that looks bad for the KMT because, you know, whatever way it plays out, he is a DPP staffer, so, you know, you're hitting the DPP. Yet, at the same time, you know, China obviously kidnapped him, and then you're the pro-China party. So there's not really a great way to resolve this. Although Lee actually has a strange history in which he was a former New Party staffer. Um, I think, uh, no, a member, because before a change in political identification looks like. Um he should, we'll, bring, he should bring that up then in Beijing. <laughs> he should get out his new party membership card and flash that, and maybe they let him go. That's right. Um, it's, it's quite odd. Um, but, you know, the KMT really doesn't have any real way to really deal with this. I mean, if they take a, a, a upfront stance in claiming that they will negotiate with China, you know, that, that also just points to their general pro-China policies. So they have an issue. But, I mean, it's, I think it's a bigger issue that the DPP also is somewhat quite on the issue. Um, high-profile members of the DPP have avoided making statements on it uh, to date, because of the fear that this will, you know, worsen cross-strait relations to a greater point than it already is. Yeah, we had the Mainland Affairs Council came out on Thursday and said that the arrest of Lee could basically lead to a further deterioration of cross-strait ties and also less respect or trust in Beijing from the Taiwan public. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just a really, really difficult situation. And to say that it's going to lead to worse or a deterioration in cross-strait ties is one thing, but you could also just say it is a deterioration. This is what is happen- happening now. We have a Taiwanese citizen being arrested and being held in China. We don't know what the charges are. We don't know where he's being held. The government has very little it can do, and it's not doing much. So there's a fair criticism against the government, against the DPP, against the KMT, but overall it just reflects the fact that there is very little they can do in the first place. Right, needless to say, we'll have more on this story next week as hopefully more information about Lee's arrest and the charges against him are released. We now have to take a short break for these rather important messages, but we'll be right back with more news from This Week in Taiwan. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps, along with Edward White, Brian Hugh and Donovan Smith. Now, this past Wednesday marked the 42nd anniversary of the death of Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT paid tribute to the late Republic of China head of state at his mausoleum in Taoyuan's Zhuhu district. And along with laying wreaths and paying their respects, a couple of KMT heavyweights also took the opportunity to lambast the DPP and the Tsai administration. KMT chairwoman Hong Soju accused the DPP government of ignoring public opinion by attempting to sever the island's historical ties with China in reference over the removing of statues of the former president, while KMT Central Policy Director Alex Tsai described Zhang as respected veteran who put Taiwan's security ahead of his goals. Tsai also dismissed claims, conjecture and allegations that Zhang was behind the 1947-228 incident, saying that Zhang deployed troops to Taiwan in an effort to quash an insurgency, but was not personally responsible for the incident. So, Brian, I mean, the KMT heavyweights, they paid their respects to Chiang Kai-shek. They made these comments. Do you think this is too little, too late, barking up the wrong tree, or just (laughs) paying lip service? I mean, it's kind of odd how the KMT is extremely fixated on this issue, because it's not an issue that, you know, that the KMT will gain political capital from. But because of ideology, they're really stuck on this. I mean, the KMT under Hong Xiuzhu is, you know, le- currently led by deep blue diehards, and they see themselves as combating this thing called cultural Taiwanese independence, which they see as this kind of stratagem by which the DPP managed to capture the youth vote through, you know, inculcating them with this ideology of Taiwanese independence. And as for Chiang Kai-shek, you know, because of the fact that he's like the, you know, ideological linchpin of KMT ideology, they they're really they really don't want to see icons of him go. They think that's, you know, another like a major loss in the war against cultural Taiwanese independence. And so because of the fact that, you know, Cam- Chiang Kai-shek as their, you know, sort of founding father figure apart from Sun Yat-sen, um, if he goes, you know, that, that they see that as, as something that breaks apart their ideology and its coherency and its ability to kind of affect Taiwan's youth and, you know, f- people in the future. Right, Ed? Yeah, I think the KMT is making an interesting choice here, as Brian identified, that they're, they're really playing to this sort of hardline base, and I wonder whether that's the smartest choice, given the public, um, at the actual public mood around things related to Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT, or the early days of the KMT. You know, if you look at the online reaction to this story this week, which you may, may say is sort of reflecting the, the, young, the young view in Taiwan, it was all... Um, they're all pretty much in opposition to the KMT on this issue. The The other thing I think to consider is that the DPB has started, or the government has started a, a long and what will be a tough project for Taiwan around transitional justice and reviewing a lot of the historical events of the past. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for the KMT to either push back or to kind of get on with the show and try and, and try and start the, the, the reform process that people have been calling for. And what about Alex Tsai's comments, Donovan? I mean, obviously he tried to come out and say that Zhang wasn't responsible for the 228 incident. I mean, do you think people will take this as fake fact, should I say, or do you think they'll simply maybe err on the side of caution when it comes to comments like that? Well, okay, we're talking about Alex Tsai here, who has a long history of comments which seem to run uh, somewhat somewhat against the grain of public opinion. Um, I mean, he talked about here, you know, if Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Zhu were kidnapped by a militia, it would be impossible for Taipei-based President Tsai Ing-wen to sit idly by and not send any troops to quash the militia in Kaohsiung. 
uh, things like that. Um, you know, between him and Hong Xiu Zhu, uh, she was talking about, you know, you know, Chang's uh, sacrifices for the nation. And on Facebook, she was posting up videos of her attending, you know, a ceremony honoring uh, the passing of, of Chang. And, uh, but what's, what's really kind of remarkable right now is that this is all taking place in the context of the, the KMT chair race. And so much of it is an echo chamber for the Huang Fuxing and, and of such a tiny, narrow base of the party. And it's so r- remarkably out of tune with public opinion right now. Brian, do you think Donovan was right there? Obviously, not not every KMT bod came out this week and made a big lofty statement. In fact, several of the people running for the KMT leadership post didn't say anything. Mm. I think that, you know, that's a strategic silence. I mean, you know, for candidates in the KMT race, if they do come out directly against Chiang Kai-shek, that will be a blow against them. But, you know, they're trying to be silent and evade the issue. At issue is, I think, um, at heart of the issue, I think, is the fact that the KMT, or the Deep Blue segment of it, it's still really concerned about the Taiwan faction, and there's still this kind of paranoia. So it's hoped that this will be, the Chiang Kai-shek issue will be one that can draw lines in the sand and, you know, to draw the line between what they view as traitors within the party and, you know, those who are loyal to the party above all else. Yeah, the, the only other thing I think is that you have um, the DPP or the, the government has decided to declassify a lot of historical documents related to the 228 incident that happened in recent months. And so some of these kind of historical arguments and the the contention around who did what and that over the over the past you know 80 or 90 years in Taiwan, they'll probably be put to bed some of these discussions over the next three or four years. So how long the um, hardline KMT people can kind of make these claims is um, I suppose that time frame is running out. Right, here's a question for the three of you. I'll throw it out to you, all three of you, starting with Brian. Obviously, the statues of Chiang Kai-shek is an issue with the KMT. The government, current government is looking to remove them. The KMT says, no, they should remain. What do you think? Do you think they should get rid of the statues or keep them? It's actually uh, an issue for the DPP as well because, you know, if they do carry out this widespread measure... You know, then that also leaves them open to the charge of political persecution. Um, but these things are everywhere, and you know, I think that you know, it is it is a very visible sign. I mean, personally, I'm in favor of getting rid of them because you know he is a authoritarian dictator. But the DPP also has to kind of tread carefully on this because you know it can't just authoritarian you know act in a seemingly authoritarian matter and just get rid of all of them right away. It needs to have some specific cause justification that you know will play well with the public. Or at least, you know, there's there's still this kind of post-authoritarian paranoia, I think, about a return to paranoia, uh, yeah, to authoritarian politics, even from the DPP. So, you right. know. Edward, I mean, do you think removing Zhang's statues is a good thing or a bad thing, or erasing history is just something you shouldn't do? You can't help it, it happened, there you go. As a non-Taiwanese, I'll um, just sit in the safe zone and say there should be a question that should be put to the Taiwanese, but it should be certainly something. My view would be that it should be something that the politicians should be very clear on. So I don't think it's something that the DPP should surprise the nation with and come out and say yes, we're going to take these down. It should be something that is campaigned on and made as an election promise so that people know what they're voting for and then that way people can say, well look, we put this to the vote and the public said one way or the other. Right, Donovan. Yeah, I think right now they're actually, the DPP is actually handling this correctly. The the right now essentially it's been it, the the primary uh, center of a, a debate on this is going on in universities and schools and local governments who have jurisdiction over the individual statues. 
and each of these individual authorities is sort of dealing it with it in their own way. You know, Tainan is removing them. Individual universities like Sun Yat-sen University are debating whether or not to remove them. Uh, Kuenza came out and said that he wants to keep them in Taipei. So it's it's been kind of a local issue, uh, but that also takes into account local sensibilities and, you know, I think within the next few years, they're all going to be gone. I think eventually the debate is going to eventually lead to them all being swept away. But what's nice about the way that it's going through now is it's being dealt with on a local basis, on a personal basis, and people are getting involved on a personal level. And there's a certain catharsis going on, I think, nationwide. The central government has been sidestepping it in favor of these local governments and local decision makers. And I think that's actually a good way to go about it. Right, and we shall move away from party politics now, thankfully. And the Ministry of Transport this week floated a proposal for postal delivery workers to play a role in the long-term care programme for the elderly. Deputy Transport Minister Wang Guotai said that his office is floating the idea of having mail carriers from the Zhanghua Post Office provide services such as visiting and delivering meals to the elderly. Health Minister Chen Shijong said the feasibility of such a move is not very high, and postal workers themselves have expressed scepticism over the idea, saying it would increase their workload. And as for the Zhanghua Post Office, well, it quashed a similar idea several years ago, describing it simply as being impractical. So, Donovan, postal workers delivering meals to the elderly, good idea or non-starter? Well, it works in Japan, but the, in Japan the way it works is that they, you know, the elderly care people, they pay for it in advance. So in, in in theory, it's not it's it's not actually you know it, it could actually be be something that could work. Um, now they also noted here I, I I forget which government official uh, off the top of my head, but he was said that you know it's time that the postal workers start coming up with uh, a second source of income over post you know after delivering uh, mail because right now obviously snail mail is not a huge is, is a declining business. So it, it, it is, and they said that they, specifically they said this is something they want to, both the health ministry and the MT and the Ministry of Transportation and Communications, both actually said that this is something they were willing to consider and wanted to discuss uh, going forward. Uh, but, you know, obviously the Japanese model is a model. This is something that actually has been going on since 2008 or 2009 on a volunteer basis. So there is actually some structure or base for this and certain models they could actually work from. Well, obviously, Brian, this is aimed at more rural areas rather than inner-city urban areas. Mm. It it is a broader problem that, you know, how do you deliver food to the elderly in rural areas? I mean, that's particularly an issue, and, you know, the people that usually do end up with that task currently are overburdened. So adding this to the burden of postal workers, I wonder about... Um, I mean, you know, I feel like this is kind of a maybe a way to, for the government to sidestep the issue and take more concrete measures. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it is definitely true that postal services are in decline across the world. So I think, you know, the, the postal service in Taiwan needs to find some way to sustain itself. Right. I mean, what, what about you, Edward? I mean, do you reckon the government's looking here for a cheap solution to its long-term care program for the elderly without actually having to do any work and employ new people? 
I'm quite a fan of any innovation in the area of aged care. And, um, you know, if you look at Taiwan's society, there's going to be 20% of the population who will be elderly by 2025, and that's up from around 13% today. So there's basically going to be a huge number of old people in, on the island um, over the next 10 years. So any way to support those people um, at a cost, in a sort of cost-efficient manner, I think, is, is worth talking about. The, the other thing, I guess, is that, in the in the postal um, market, that they yeah they have to look at ways to survive. So again, innovation in that space is is something I would support. I'm not necessarily I haven't had a close look at this policy in particular, but it does sound any anything in these areas sounds like they should be worth worth discussion. Of course, uh, discussing. You're, a bit, you're a bit young to be looking into this personally, Edward. Of course, yes, <laughs> but I, I you know I have family members that are <laughs> getting on. <laughs> Right, we shall move on from postal delivery workers sending meals on wheels to the elderly, and they're not sending them to Edward at the moment because he's far too young, of course. But before we go, Taiwan found itself tabloid fodder this past week in the international media following reports that an elderly lady was using her expensive Louis Vuitton handbag to go shopping at a local wet market. Now, the story was first posted on local community network site Dcard, but it went viral within hours, and the story went that a man wanted to treat his grandmother to a new and rather expensive handbag after seeing her carrying the same one for many years. However, the young chap didn't expect her to be using it to put fresh fish in. Great quote from the grandmother here. She praised the bag for it being waterproof, but said it was a little heavy. So, Donovan, if someone gave you a Louis Vuitton handbag, would you be taking it to the wet market? Sure, why not? Um, but I also think that really, uh, I think this is actually a test uh, of the Junghua Post. Uh, I think they're starting to use, I think they're actually experimenting using Louis Vuitton bags to deliver uh, you know, fit, fresh fish and other uh, other meals to the elderly here in Taiwan. Hey, but it was waterproof. It's obviously, it, I mean, Louis Vuitton could use this as an advert, Brian, surely. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, that, that's, you know, buy, buy one for your grandmother so that you can buy, you know, it's a great advertisement. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it was engineered by Louis Vuitton, who knows, as a viral marketing campaign. And of course, if it's a genuine <laughs> one, you could wash it, surely, Edward. I don't know much about Louis Vuitton bags, mate, but, you know, I mean, I would have thought if it's an expensive handbag, possibly you could wash it and it would be okay. I'm with Brian on this, I don't want to come across as a conspiracy theorist, but we're all saying Louis Vuitton far too much, and it was April Fool's Week this week, so there is precedent for um, fake news stories going out. There is. Anyway, with a grandson, in fact, was quoted as saying that he saw the funny side and even asked his grandmother to take him to the wet market with her when she next went. Yeah, uh, does this person exist? You know, do we That's do we have anything? I mean, these are—I don't even know who reported this stuff to there, start there, with. There was, but, you know, was wasn't there, this all? Didn't this all just come from a Facebook post or something? It came from a D card post, and there was one photograph mocked up <laughs> of a Louis Vuitton bag with some pilchards in it. Yeah, I, I which think, is quite amusing. I think I we've all been had. Yes. Anyway, having gone to the presidential office for an interview once upon a time many years ago, carrying a Seven Eleven plastic bag with my recording equipment in. I'll forsake the Louis Vuitton and stick to my plastic bags to recycle. Anyway, that was enough for us this week here in Taiwan on This Week in Taiwan. And I was joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Uh, good night. Edward White. Good evening, thank you. And on the phone we had Donovan Smith from Taijong. Good evening. And me, your host this evening, Gavin Phipps. And hopefully you'll be tuning in next week when Keith Menconi will be back in the host seat. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. 
And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.